Hi, I'm Winnie Da Silva. As a leadership strategist and executive coach, I've had the privilege of working with cutting-edge leaders from companies of all sizes and industries for over 20 years. Welcome to Transformative Leadership Conversations. I didn't see my kids for two months. My wow. wife took care of them. I, we all slept four hours or less every night. We engineered this thing from the ground up, and it was such a meaningful product, but also so rewarding to get it done while under such duress. It was really an eye-opener for us that if you're going to spend 100 hours a week working, make sure it's on something that's meaningful and it's a product that has meaning to the world. But I have to say, as a leader, deciding that instead of closing the office and putting everyone on furlough or just bailing until it gets better, I doubled down and invested a lot of money to keep the team intact so that the team remains stable to make sure they have the runway personally to contribute and participate, I think was one of the big leadership challenges to navigate. And we did that uh, successfully. My guest today is an entrepreneur, architect, and investor. He specializes in guiding product development teams from concept to viable product, focusing on product acceleration and digital manufacturing. He has put these talents to work by starting and currently leading five different companies one of which is 10X Beta, a product development and engineering firm working in medical devices, electronics, and specialized robotics. As the founder and CEO of 10X Beta, he builds expert multidisciplinary teams to solve complex problems. 10X Beta has developed hundreds of products over the last 12 years. Most recently, just as New York City was shutting down from COVID-19 and there was a severe shortage of ventilators, he and others created from the ground up an innovative, low-cost emergency ventilator in just 30 days, work that should have taken 12 to 24 months. Marcel Bota, thank you for being on my show. Before we get started, tell us a little bit about your companies, how they fit together, and for you, what's the driving force as an entrepreneur? I started my first startup company out of MIT in 2006 with a bunch of friends from grad school. We looked at tracking pets and people and built a very valuable product without a real commercial application. It wasn't unlike um, what Nike Plus and Fitbit and Apple Watch became today, but it was very early in the ecosystem of wearables and thinking about how to track motion. And uh, what I found when I came out of that company and I ran a couple more product experiments um, in 2009 and 2010 was that it was really stressful to build like a really high value team it was really hard to understand how do we build longevity in the team it was around about 2010 that i decided to start 10x beta and formalize my experimentation in Mm -hmm. the product space that gave rise to the ability to um, both experiment with new product ideas and then turn those product ideas into companies either backed by friends and family or venture capital and then over time, some of those investments became two tranches of um, value creation, maybe three mm-hmm. even. One is 10x beta that does engineering and does engineering for hire. So it's a professional service for a fee. Part of our uh, revenue is invested through an investment vehicle called 10x Venture that wants to invest in companies that are aligned with our long-term thesis around um, the connected world. Then. Client companies uh, present the third stream, 
where we take an equity swap deal in lieu of cash for some of the engineering work we do. That yielded over the last 10 years about $2.6 million in investments and positions in companies uh, that make hardware and services and medical products. Of all the things that we've worked on in the last many years, I'm most excited about the three that I've really started to accelerate this year. One was a spare wave ventilator. And coming out of that first wave of the COVID crisis and also subsequent ventilator crisis, we delivered 3,000 units to New York City. But the big learning there was that automation of a resuscitation bag or breathing circuit apparatus was something that was thought about for the last 10, 15 years, Mm -hmm. but no one has made that into a medical product at scale. Mm -hmm. So the next step for us is to make that into something that's cheap, accessible, reliable, shipped globally. That's one of the big, exciting new products that we'll be focusing on for the next two years, coming out of our work on the ventilators for New York City. Mm-hmm. Then I mentioned that we do investments. Mm-hmm. So becoming more sophisticated in terms of how we apply capital um, to invest in technologies and companies that we believe in mm-hmm. will be another learning over the next 10 years. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, th- that's another sort of exciting, I think, pivot that we're making to be more uh, intentional around the projects we associate with. And then the last two are things that I've been working on for many years, but that are now hitting their ne- the next crescendo point in their development. One is Validos, which is a drug delivery device mm-hmm. and uh, a digital health product that is built on top of drug delivery hardware that helps to reduce the risk of administering opiates and other high-risk drugs for depression, anxiety, sleep disorders, abuse disorders. And that's really where 90% of our effort will be for the coming year, launching that company as we sign our first customers in the pharmaceutical science space. And then lastly, a product that we came up with in partnership with the Center for Discovery, Upstate New York, four years ago, mm-hmm. is now coming into its final stages of preclinical commercialization, which is a wheelchair r- robot or mobility device for disabled children and adults. And it's something that is not easy to commercialize because it's not a scooter or a hoverboard or a one wheel skateboard for the masses it has a very niche audience and it needs to be at the same quality or better than your best consumer product Mm -hmm. to really respectfully cater to that audience and uh, we've been working on that for four years we've had units out in the field for almost three years being tested we should have the next version of that product um, in hand and testing in the next two weeks so these are the things in my ecosystem that i'm focusing on right now The last thing that I would say is historically, we worked on everything and we did a lot of stuff. And I don't think we're going to do as much the next 10 years. Hmm. I think we're going to be much more selective about what we work on. And we're going to choose products and professional engagements that are symbiotic or complementary to our interests in drug delivery, mobility, and life-saving equipment. Thanks for that overview. And just a few observations. One is you really have your hands on 
industries of healthcare, med tech that's needed right now and cutting edge and is spiking in terms of innovation. And the work that you're doing here is not only really needed, it sounds super exciting with lots of opportunities to grow and innovate. And I'm sure you've got lots of really wonderful partners that you're doing some of this work with. So that's exciting. The other thing that has always struck me about you in working with you is you're a very long-term thinker in terms of the work you do and the investments you make. But this whole idea of being an investor in the work that you do, I think is truly unique. And again, there's that long-term view of launching products, creating companies, the equity, the things that you're doing to build exponential value, not only for yourself, but other people and other companies is to me amazing. And, and it seems very different in terms of maybe how other people pursue what they're good at. I don't know. Does that resonate with you? It does, yes. You have to be careful as a small uh, product development firm to uh, randomly invest part of your profits in product ideas. You have to become more disciplined over time as you learn because you're an angel investor. You're not a VC. You're investing mm -hmm. your own money. You're not investing somebody else's money. What we have access to, though, is really a ground floor, if not basement, view on whether an idea is mm -hmm. relevant how it fits into the ecosystems of 110 other ideas that we saw in the same space over the last year. How does it relate to the team's efficacy and their ability to potentially work together to make a success of the product? And we've been surprised over the last couple of years about which teams are really credible mm. versus which teams look good on paper but are not going to get the traction that they want for a myriad of reasons. I don't have a prescribed formula yet, but the, the team dynamics and the team uh, experience is still front and center of the most important evaluator on whether you are investing in something credible. Content, I mean, product development is a constant, sequential, and sometimes parallel a series of failures and experimentation. And it's only mm -hmm. through that process that you're going to figure out what is going to be the best fit long term. Hmm. I think finally at a point where we are wanting to be more selective mm -hmm. around what we want to work on. And that doesn't necessarily mean that we have to say no to everything. I've just changed my tone to telling people up front what I'm interested in mm -hmm. and that if what I'm interested in is not correlated with what they need, I'm going to recommend somebody else in my ecosystem that's highly competent as well. Sure. Having a yes and approach to helping everyone around you is, um, I think, a, a much better strategy than, than no, no. Yeah, <laughs> <right>. <laughs> so that, that helps to keep the ecosystem intact. But I think as we focus on biz dev and investment and fundraising for some of our own products, we realize that you have to go after the things you're interested in and focus very meticulously only on that because we work a ridiculous amount of hours. The next big challenge for us in 21 and 22 are building the management layers out for these different companies so that they can run autonomously from our core management goals as a group. I have a couple follow-up questions. One is this idea of how you got to be more selective. Maybe you're in a position to figure out what you're good at, what you enjoy, where you're connecting in terms of the industry or in terms of the marketplace. But how did you get to this point of being more selective and, and knowing more clearly what it is that you want to be involved in? There's a couple of things that happened over the last two years. We did Spiro, which was 
an extremely heavy lift by the entire team. Yeah. And it was a product that was really timely and really needed. And it wasn't like we had a choice. Listen, maybe you'll right. show up on Saturday and work on this part time. Yeah. I didn't see my kids for two months. My wow. wife took care of them. I, we all slept four hours or less every night. We run at 100 miles a minute constantly to deliver mm-hmm. on that. And there were some naysayers that said, you'll never do it because NASA didn't do it, or you never do it because the GM didn't do it. But the reality was we engineered this thing from the ground up to be made in New York. And it was such a meaningful product, but also so rewarding to get it done while under such duress that we forged friendships and partnerships and team cohesiveness with that work together that uh, is unlike anything that I've seen in the previous 10 years of our work together. Hmm. And that had both positive and negative outcomes. Hmm. The positive was that, that it was really good to see the team's capability while working under duress together and their commitment. It was really an eye-opener for us that if you're going to spend 100 hours a week working, make sure it's on something that's meaningful and it's a product that has meaning to the world. So we are definitely not taking on projects that don't resonate in terms of meaning. The criteria that we used to grade is, is it relevant for the world and for New York City? Is it scalable? Meaning, is it more than one? Are we going to have impact? The ventilator wouldn't have been uh, a reasonable project to work on if it was only a research project where we made one or two ventilators that got approval but never scaled to actually be ready to be used on a patient. Hmm. And that was the big challenge for most of the ventilators that got EUA approval. Almost none of them shipped at scale, which made made them meaningless. Hmm. So there's relevance and scale, and then there's business. So the business rationalization of choosing products that give you the runway and the scope to make better products over time. If you make everything experimental and you don't make money, you slowly diminish your ability to contribute to the world because of your lack of resources in that world. You talked about team dynamics, and I know working with effective teams is extremely critical to the work that you do. And your observations over the last 10, 15 years and working with teams, I know you said you didn't have a formula, but do you notice some patterns in terms of your own experience in working with teams and what works and what doesn't? Could you share some thoughts about that? Yes, there's two parts to that answer. That's the team, the internal teams that work with me at 10X Beta. Then there are the teams that are client teams that are working with us. And overzealous hierarchy in the client team, you see this more corporate culture than you see it in startup culture. Mm. But where there's too much bureaucracy to make a decision, that's counterproductive to high-speed innovation or innovation in general. The smartest people in the room when it comes to development are the people in the room. Because Mm. if you want to do really good work together with a client company, you have to immerse yourself with that company So I'm always promoting a a flat hierarchy where Mm. there's a shared balance of who's responsible for what and where it's clear that everyone's contributing um, intellectually because they understand the challenge and they're not just administrating. Then second, it helps to have groups that mirror my team's personality, groups Mm. with a warm Mm -hmm. and caring 
and go the extra mile. Mm -hmm. And the majority of the people that work for me that have long-term success with working with me have warm personalities. That doesn't mean that they are pushovers. They're very mm -hmm. strong world and <clears throat> very decisive, mm -hmm. but they're warm, meaning that socially, when you are spending 20 hours a day in the same room, we're, yeah. still, we're still getting along because you're not sweating the small stuff. Yeah. The Spiro project was interesting because not only did we compress 12 to 24 months of work into 30 days, we also compressed 12 to 24 months of emotions. There were definitely a lot of bubble up moments that I had to yeah. manage across okay. three different consortium companies, my team, and all the adjacent teams to make sure that we focused on the task at hand and having that North Star of why we were in the same room, regardless of what we thought in that moment, was an extremely important, I think, learning for me that if you can provide that North Star on all your projects together on why are you in the room, why are you getting up at 5 a.m. to work on this project with your multinational partners in multiple time zones, that helps to steer and keep the team aligned. And these are the things that making good choices and what you spend your time on was advice that I got 20 years ago that mm. I probably didn't understand as well as I understand it right now. It sounds like building the ventilators with Spiro Wave was a microcosm of what you realized you wanted to do going forward in terms of the North Star, why are we here, how do we work together as a team? And if you can figure that out in a condensed, crushing sort of way like you did at that time, being able to do that when it's a regular working situation, you want to be able to mirror that. Yeah, I, that's exactly true. I do want to mirror that. Mm -hmm. And I do want to figure out how um, to build on top of that. What, what do you call it? It's not a culture, but it's it's just a, you know, a level of commitment. Mm -hmm. That said, I don't want to work at that pace <laughs> if I can avoid it. <laughs> right. projects. But when it matters, and I think the urgency is not around healthcare only. Mm -hmm. I think for the next couple of years, we will be focusing on healthcare's biggest challenges. Okay. But I understand this urgency to be present in climate change and many other mm -hmm. applications where I think my team would be equally as effective. Sure. That said, I think we are definitely starting to focus. We're moving from a generalist agency to um, a healthcare agency where we are looking at that consumer edge, medical, all the way to life-saving medical equipment and how we might contribute successfully to the world for, for the coming years. Let's take a quick break. You're listening to Transformative Leadership Conversations, and I'm your host, Winnie Da Silva. Let's get back now to our conversation with Marcel Bota, the CEO and founder of 10X Beta. So I'd like to switch gears a little bit, although maybe not much, given the things that you were just talking about. But I'd like for you to tell us about a difficult leadership challenge that you faced. I think team building and mm -hmm. keeping your team intact during one of, one of the worst crises in humanity mm -hmm. is probably... The main leadership challenge, because entering the year, I knew that COVID was going to become a major issue in New York. So I prepped my team to work remotely two or three weeks before New York shut down. Okay. I just said to them, listen, if this is happening in Europe, it happened in Asia, it's going to happen here. So let's be ready. We were already working remotely and effectively for two, three weeks when we got the call to work on the ventilators. Mm -hmm. So 
having the foresight to make decisions that are hard on your efficacy to work in personal engineering projects in favor of your team's well-being is important. Mm-hmm. And doing that, and then reversing all of that because we all agreed that being in a warehouse together with 100 other people was the right thing to do when the rest of the city was under lockdown was seemingly counterintuitive, mm-hmm. but we discussed it as a group and we agreed that this was what we wanted to contribute to because I think at that moment in time, we had not fully realized the, just the psychology of the impact it has on professionals that can contribute but don't have the option to have to stay at home through this entire crisis. Right. So I think we were very lucky to, to have that moment in time. The stress that it put on our team was that those who didn't participate in the project were very much left behind in terms of our ability to interact with them for months on end because we were so dead focused on delivery. And uh, so we've had some departures, we've had some turnover. I've never managed a a company during a national or global health crisis. Mm-hmm. But I started 10X right after the 2008-2009 financial crisis. So I understand the economic challenges that come from managing through one of those crises. But I have to say, as a leader, deciding that instead of closing the office and putting everyone on furlough or just bailing until it gets better, I doubled down and invested a lot of money to keep the team intact because I felt that Yes, we are valuable as a company. We've got a great office. We've done an incredible amount of work. But let's double down and invest in the team so that the team remains stable, whether they stayed or not, but to make sure that they have the runway personally to contribute and participate in this year, I think was one of the big leadership challenges to navigate. And we did that uh, successfully. So tell me a little bit about what did that practically mean, doubling down on keeping the team intact? What did that look like? So first thing that happens when the rest of the world shuts down is that your supply chains are disrupted. Mm-hmm. Then your biz dev is disrupted. So your inbound work as a service company, your cash flow is by extension then disrupted. Mm-hmm. And you are basically at the mercy of currently open projects that you have to deliver, but there's no site of new projects. So we had to put a couple of high profile, short term, short and medium term projects on hold to work on the ventilator. Some of those clients we lost because they had to find other ways to work with remote teams to get their work done, which was deemed not as important. And that was by mutual agreement. Others were paused and we came back on the two, three months later and completed their work. But very much the financing and I personally as the owner of the company, this engineering company, trying to navigate financing, payroll and runway for the company to fully deliver on ventilators, then go through this ebb period of reactivating BizDev, preparing for the second wave in New York and making sure that we have runway, both in terms of work post ventilator but also in, in terms of cash, maintain the basics, rent, payroll, etc. as we go through uh, the rest of the year and anticipating another year of potential disrupted work. 
So I think that the mechanics of that was applying and activating the same financial mechanisms that every other small business had access to, investing personal money into the company so that it was stable, and building out the team and adding senior management to help carry the load of getting through the next wave of work as we increase the size of our projects, Mm -hmm. but also the complexity and requiring more senior talent in-house. Yeah, it's interesting. One thing that stands out to me is that you had to make a lot of tough decisions in a very short period of time that related to you personally, the business, the sequencing of the business, your team, who you're working with in terms of clients, a lot of really tough and important decisions made very quickly. Yes. And the, I'm fine with making decisions very fast. And because this is just my personality, you've known me for a long time. What I have to be careful of is the speed at which I make decisions and sometimes the perceived lack of emotion mm. that goes with the speed that I make these decisions at might rub other people the wrong way, especially when I think they want to have a discussion or want me to show more empathy during that decision process. Uh But the reality is it's not that I have less empathy. It's just that I don't have the time to express Uh the empathy at the same rate that others have. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the things that I was supposed to um, get better at in 2020, still make decisions fast, but have space between decisions. And um, this year didn't present itself as the opportunity to <laughs> to simplify my life. I literally well, said in the end of 2019 that in 2020, I want to simplify my life. And I think it became more complex. I am going to make this the task for the next five years, assuming that it's not going to take one year to simplify it and to really focus on how do I build cohesive and reliable and standalone management teams, which relieves the burden from me. I think that's the challenge and scale that we're at. If we want to grow as, a, as an enterprise or a group or a company, we have to really figure out who's responsible for what and have trusted groups that take care of building out these products and products companies because one person can't manage five things. I think there's few exceptions outside of Elon Musk of anybody doing a good job with more than one thing. <laughs> Yeah. So this whole idea of simplifying your life, and I know that we've talked about that in a strange way, I guess you simplified it by making a decision to work on those ventilators for two months, because that's all you did. I'm sure that's what you didn't have in mind when you thought about simplifying your life. But it does connect back to what you were saying around being a little bit more intentional about what work you take on and what clients you work with. It seems like there's a, a connection there to simplifying your life. I think that I'm decomposing what that means as we leverage our experience from the last 10 years into deciding who we partner with for the next 10 years without skipping a beat on our own startup companies. So figuring out if we want to make an impact on drug delivery, how do we scale to become a multi-hundred million dollar company? How do we give access to these electric wheelchairs to um, anybody that needs it? How do we build uh, the second stage of this ventilator company? Because will it be the same if it's not under duress? Because the first stage was under duress. It's, these are complex personal challenges that I will have the next year. I would love to go back to what you were saying about empathy. Uh, it shows your self-awareness. 
where you can make decisions very quickly, but your empathy isn't always caught up to the speed at which you make decisions. What would it look like for you to be able to show empathy or have that catch up? And you talked about you want to have a culture uh, of people that you work with that are warm and caring, who go the extra mile. So what would it look like? I think making space to have conversations with people one-on-one Mm-hmm. to really understand their perspective, yeah. uh, but also to share my perspective. So if I'm promoting an organic flat hierarchy, I should be presenting them with a space for conversation, not just mm-hmm. a space for reporting. And I think that's one thing that I'm uh, really focusing on or uh, emphasizing is that conversation, mm-hmm. but also um, realizing that you can only do so many productive hours in the day what are the top three things that I need to achieve every day to make sure that I can have in between space to tackle things with, which are more per, uh, interpersonal moments versus yeah. just quantified KPIs that I've got to meet. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm always feeling that, that I'm not very productive and that I could be better at being productive. But then I realized that I'm probably measuring the wrong things. The contribution you're making in your life isn't just about productivity. The contribution you're making has other spheres to it, interpersonal moments, as you said. And I assume that doesn't just mean family. It's interpersonal moments you have with your team or just sitting by yourself thinking. Yes, I think it's me, myself, the team, my kids and my wife. I think you've got to make space for everybody. I feel like also all of us had to remap how we interact with our immediate and extended family and friends because of the pod culture. Who are the people that you're safely interacting with before we have a vaccine? It's everyone is taking the strain of um, trying to remap how they interact with these different layers of their life. Taking a look back over your life, what are one or two important learning moments or lessons that continue to help you in times of difficulty? What sort of things do you turn to or remember or think about as you push through the challenges that you face there's this really specific moment uh, when I was working as an architect in Florida and I was about to leave to grad school, to MIT. And my boss at the time, a very gifted architect, she said, everyone's replaceable. And I thought, mm-hmm. wow, what a terrible comment. Okay. Yeah. Because we had a good relationship and we still do today. It took me many years to realize uh, as a business owner and as somebody that has to build teams for a living, you have to acknowledge that every person's path is unique. Mm -hmm. And if you're not a business owner in a company and you're an employee, then your path is, it's timed. Mm -hmm. Meaning that either you go through the ranks or have an ownership stake, or you move on to your next bigger challenge. Every time when I lose team members, when they resign or we we let one go, we have this this moment where you're like, oh man, I'm going to miss this person because we are a small team Mm -hmm. and we don't take it lightly because Mm -hmm. it's really hard to keep small team cultures intact. However, I think for me, especially this year, understanding that my job as an owner uh, and leader is not to make sure everyone's happy because happiness is not an emotion I actually have much influence on for the people I work with, but offering inspiring challenges, offering resources that allows us to work on inspiring things 
that will further everyone's careers. The KPIs for deciding whether I'm doing what I'm supposed to do as a leader has changed for me. Assume every relationship that's temporary, meaning that we're going to work on some great products together. Uh, and when it changes, it may, may be other products, other companies, or not at all. Mm-hmm. And, but, but, but having that sort of open door policy almost to figure out how you do innovation in New York City and in the world has helped me to sort of navigate the change of team members and the change of challenges and the pace of change over the last year specifically, but also over the last five years. Mm -hmm. What you're saying is we all have chapters or seasons in our life where we move through different jobs and careers and relationships, and that's normal and natural and a good thing. And that means we're growing and evolving. And it sounds like the way that maybe you took that comment from your boss many years ago felt maybe like it hurt at first or like it felt cold, but now instead you see it as opportunity for everyone to grow and learn and evolve. And sometimes it's with you and working with 10X Beta and and then maybe that chapter's over and another new chapter for them begins and a new chapter for you begins whether that feels like it's the right thing or whether it feels like, oh, this is going to be really hard and it's and I'm going to miss that person. Yes. And I think that maybe I didn't have the insight to understand what she truly meant 20 years mm-hmm. ago. And maybe this is not 100% what she meant. But what I took away from it was that you can't hang on to people for dear life. Right. You have to give people space to move mm-hmm. and explore and do their thing. And if the current format of working together doesn't work, then is there a different format? Is there a different company? And if you can't, then figure out a way for them to have a transition to something that's more of a fit with with their long-term objectives. I want to come back to something you said, your KPIs as a leader have changed. Can you share a little bit about what's changed or, or what hasn't, or maybe how your leadership view or philosophy has shifted or evolved? Yes, I took an immense amount of risk over the last 10 years relative to um, some of my peers. And a couple of years ago, I was at a book club that I think uh, was where we met originally. And one of the people at the table said, Marcel, you're the least risk averse person that I know. (laughs) And I was like, what does that mean? Is it an insult? Is it a compliment? But then I set me off on this path to go and review what is the average risk profile for a non-entrepreneur, for somebody that has a day job? How do you reduce your risk profile? And you can't just one morning wake up and say, I'm going to shut down all these things because everything's in motion. It's like a juggler, right? right. A juggler can't drop one ball. You drop all the balls or none at all. But for me, a couple of years ago, I said, okay, let's figure out how we de-risk the way in which we work while focusing on doing fewer bigger, more exciting, more meaningful, and more challenging products. So Spiro was, in a way, for me, a natural transition from bigger and bigger challenges. I think my learning from this year was I need to be hyper-vigilant about how I spend my time and my team's time and talent. It's my path to do really hard things all the time, not just once in a lifetime and to figure out how can I contribute most successful my talents to, to our civil society. And I think that Spiro was a wake-up call for me to say, yes, you can do these hard things. Why would you do the easy things unless they were strictly for fun? Do you feel like that 
comment in our book group, it sounded like it shaped your thinking and was a challenge to you to think about taking less risk that involves personal sacrifice that doesn't lead to things that are worthwhile, but you want more risk doing the hard things. I think it goes back to meaning and a huge driver for you is what am I doing? Is it meaningful? And not just meaningful at a top level, but from a deep level. It was Mark that made the, the comment maybe four years back. But the reason the comment resonated was I just got married uh, to my now, now wife, I think two years prior. And when you are married to a non-entrepreneur or dating a non-entrepreneur and um, somebody that looks at the world differently than you, that doesn't have the same risk appetite mm -hmm. as you, you need to understand the mechanisms of risk. And the reason why that set me off on a path to understand risk mitigation better was really to try and figure out over time, how do you balance the euphoria of startup culture, where less than 2% of people are successful, with mm. the discipline of building long-term valuable companies? And I'm not interested in the euphoria stage. I'm very excited about new innovation, but I'm more excited about becoming a more disciplined human being over time to contribute on these really exciting, large, meaningful projects without taking all the risk personally. But there are many mechanisms to do that. There are all the standard filtering techniques to figure out whether your idea is meaningful whether it adds value or relevance to the world, which a lot of entrepreneurs skip that step. They don't speak to 100 customers. They don't speak to investors that they don't like, whose feedback they don't like. They will only want to speak to the people who understand their visionary message. And I think with the exception of a few, most people fail if they can't quantify or receive feedback in a meaningful yeah. way. And I have failed many times because I didn't listen to feedback in a timely manner, or I was too excited about something that I thought was meaningful, but others didn't. Mm -hmm. And I just feel that as we think about managing risk and engaging in risky ventures, and also choosing clients who we want to work with over time, we do have the responsibility to ourselves and to those we live with and what we are in relationships with to understand all sides of the risk discussion. Mm -hmm. Thank you for, for going a little bit deeper on that. Maybe there is not a clear answer to this question, but I, I was just curious, is there anything unique about you as a leader being someone that's from South Africa, that lives in New York City, that lives in America, that's contributed to your leadership? Yes, I think that culturally it's very different, right? I grew up under apartheid. I saw the end of apartheid during my high school years. I left South Africa not because of political reasons, but because I wanted to do grad school overseas mm -hmm. and continue my education. So I was basically a professional student for most of my 20s, first in London, then Milan, then Boston. And I really chose that path out of a continued learning interest. Hmm. I'd never thought about which cultural traits differentiate me from 
the local or the vernacular population, for instance, because in New York, you have um, so many people from all over the world and same with Boston to a lesser degree, but it's an extremely diverse population of people who I, who I went to MIT with. I had um, many cities and continents represented just in my small class. And all of those people have gone on to be leaders in their field. So I think the balance of uh, South African influence is not so much, I would say, just South African culture, but it also, I think, uh, nurture and how I grew up in my nuclear family was a very important indicator of my ability to persevere. My mom joked with me that me delivering newspapers for five and a half years at 5 a.m. every morning when I was a kid in high school is probably part of the reason why I was successful in the ventilator project. But that perseverance comes from many years of refusing to settle. My leadership style definitely references a refusal to settle, an integrity to always to deliver, and uncompromising commitment to quality. And sometimes those three things cost me hundreds of thousands of dollars when we make a mistake in product development, but we always back it up by completing the task at hand. Because if you fall into a trap of delivering selectively, you will be that person one day that that questions whether you could have done a better job of living your life. And I don't want to be that person. <laughs> there are moments that you're not going to get back and there are moments where you made mistakes and there are human interactions that you're going to look back and say, hey, I wish I could just speak to that person and you check in on them and say, I'm sorry, that didn't go as planned. But I think for the most part, I have very few uh, regrets of uh, my life to date. Yeah, which is awesome. Stepping back, when you think about leaders today, whether those are leaders who are in the midst of starting a company, leaders who are earlier in their career, leaders who are later in their career, what should leaders be doing and thinking about as we take on increasingly complex challenges in our world today? What advice or ideas do you have? I'll answer that from my own perspective. We definitely have the need for diversity of perspective, diversity of thought Mm -hmm. in order to be better leaders, to be effective leaders. You cannot be blindsided because you are unwilling to look at the whole picture or to hear the whole story. I think being South African has made me, I'm very strong-willed and very opinionated and, you know, guys jump to conclusions very quickly. Like you have to manage all those positive slash negative traits with a thirst for outside knowledge, whether that is through reading, through advisors. And if they're advisors, it can't just be a bunch of gray-haired old men perpetuating a trend. What's the female perspective? What's the Gen Z perspective? What's my kid's perspective? My almost six-year-old kid offers insights into my life that I'm already like, hey, I should listen to this kid. My four-year-old was surprised that I was going to go to the park with them right after the ventilator project. And that just made me realize that, listen, but you should be at home. Your four-year-old should not tell you that it's abnormal that you're going to the park with them. So diversity of thought, diversity of perspective, is what you're going to need with increasingly complex challenges. And identify that need and that thirst for information to make better decisions and tackle those uh, challenges in a more comprehensive and successful way. 
every person needs to define how they want to source that. Going back to empathy, understanding mm-hmm. your relationships with the world, with different groups of people who have varied interests in your products and services. And you have to really understand a full perspective if you want to be good at what you do. And I think that I'm still learning every day and um, I'm only slowly getting better over time. So knowledge and thirst for learning and growing, not just through books and the traditional ways of learning, but through relationships. You didn't say this word, but listening, doing a lot of listening to people and maybe even unexpected sources like your six-year-old daughter and really taking those things seriously in terms of what you're observing. And it also ties back to what you're saying about feedback. Yes. And being grounded enough to understand that input can come from anywhere. It's not not just somebody you are immensely impressed by professionally, but it's also my six-year-old daughter, for instance, or my neighbor's kid. Because yeah. they are they're highly observant global creatures, so they have they have to also impart their opinion on the world. I'm excited for the future. I'm definitely at a point where I feel like I'm it's a blank slate of opportunity in terms of the things that we're tackling. Although I have these balls in the air that I'm juggling, mm-hmm. and it's as we navigate the next year of COVID uncertainty and get into a place of normalcy. I'm excited to see what normalcy means a year and five years from now. Yeah, me too. Marcel, this was such a fun conversation. Thank you so much for your insights and just being vulnerable with me in terms of your journey and the things that you've been working on and doing. And it was really enjoyable talking to you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Winnie. Always good to speak to you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Transformative Leadership Conversations with me, your host, Winnie Da Silva. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Marcel Botha, the CEO and founder of 10X Beta. To learn more about my work in executive coaching, leadership development, and team effectiveness, check out my website at www.winniedasilva.com or you can email me at winnie at winifred.org. I'd also love to connect with you on LinkedIn. Reach out and tell me what was helpful about today's episode or tell me about any other suggestions you have for my show. I look forward to sharing another transformative conversation with you next week.